0: Well welcome to Jim and Pat's Glasgow West End chat, everything about Glasgow's West End. This is episode 3. My name's Jim Byrne and the Pat in the title is Pat Byrne. Pat's been running a website about Glasgow's West End since 1999, so she knows a wee bit about the area. In this episode, I interview Ian Smith from the West End-based record label Last Night from Glasgow. Now, the label has been going for approximately two years. Uh, It's based on a modified crowdfunding model, uh, which means they have members which pay a small amount into the label to be involved. Uh, It was principally started by Ian and a group of his friends, about six of his friends, and they have had phenomenal success. So much success, in fact, that the whole thing kind of blew my mind. Uh, In the last two years, they've signed 15 artists to the label. They've released 11 vinyl records. Uh, They've released 23 digital albums and CDs and a bundle of USB albums. And they've organised 20 concerts and charity events. Uh, This is all funded now by 250, probably over 250 by now, members. And the thing about it, despite the fact that when I... uh, did my research into the label. They clearly are very talented business people. Despite all of that, it's a non-profit. They're not trying to make money. What they're trying to do is to help the artists. So what they're doing is they're bringing their own love of music, their own love of vinyl, and they are trying to help uh, people that they know probably lack money, probably lack the marketing and PR talents that they they happen to have. Now Ian is a truly fascinating character and I probably could have spoke to him the entire day, uh, particularly as he's speaking about things that I am interested in. Uh, It did go on a wee while, so I've decided to split the podcast into two and what you'll get this week is clearly part one. So I started just by asking him if he could tell us a little bit about
1: himself. Well, I grew up in Salkuts, Lived there till 1989. Uh, I guess I was generally always surrounded by music to some extent, but thinking back, the music I was surrounded by makes no sense because my dad was actually a big fan of modern jazz, but never played it in the house. Uh, But there was always music on in the house. I was thinking this the other day when I was listening to music, I was thinking, God, I remember listening to the Beach Boys when I was five or six. Which is a strange thing because I don't associate my father with being a Beach Boys fan. But we had it and they had Neil Diamond and Neil Sedaka and Alan Price. And there was always music on. It's the 70s. Aye, so mid-70s. We used to always listen to the charts on a Sunday evening with a cassette deck and we'd record the songs we liked. So I distinctly remember doing that. Uh, You know, being born in 71 with a brother who was five years older, he was probably catching the tail end of the punk scene. I was probably a little bit too young to know what was going on, mm, okay. but I remember him buying albums about the Stranglers and you know, talking about the Sex Pistols and the Clash and whatnot. So I was always getting fed music uh, through osmosis. Uh, funnily enough, a number of years ago, I was invited on Steve LaMac's show to talk about my first records. Right. Okay. Uh, and because they felt I'd filled in some form and they felt I had some really interesting choices because the first single I ever bought was Heart of Glass by Blondie and the first album I ever bought was Sandinista with The Clash right. uh, and I think that's probably entirely down to the fact that you know my brother was older and he was bringing this music in so I spent most of my school days being out of pace with the rest of the class. When they were listening to Iron Maiden, I was listening to The Smiths. Right, right. You know, When they were getting excited about thrash metal, I was getting excited about dance music. So that generally instilled in me a, a, you know, a desire to be my own person when it came to my musical tastes. I've never really been one to follow trends. In fact, I tend to buck them when I see someone getting an awful lot of hype it tends to make me question where this is coming from and why it exists and be suspicious of it. Right. Uh, cynical. Yeah, us. I wouldn't I'm necessarily yeah. cynical, but just aware of how things get manoeuvred and motivated and, and how trends occur. Uh, and I generally try and push against that. Uh, studied at a Academy till I was 18. Moved to Glasgow, originally thinking I might go to university and study economics, bizarrely. Dabbled with studying English. Applied for a summer job with an insurance company, got the job, and you know, twenty, what, twenty odd years, twenty eight years later, I'm still working in that industry. Right,
0: and is that you working for a firm? Or you working for yourself, or you? How
1: does it work? Uh, I work for a small independent company, and within that independent company, I run my own section of the business. So I've basically run a business for about twenty years, and that business, actually provides insurance advice to golf clubs. Right.
0: I mean, so I'll come back to that later because one of the things that struck me when I was watching, was looking at the sites and I was reading all the stuff is there's very much somebody who knows how to run a business is running this label somewhere along the way Yeah, well,
1: <laughs> I mean, we've spoken about this uh, quite a few times. I think what separates us from our counterparts is we came at it from the perspective of we know what a business needs to yeah. run like. Yeah, well, I'll uh, come
0: back to that because, as I say... It struck me right away when I was looking at all the material because I'm on a label. I know people that run labels. And from my perspective, they tend to be quite small fry things yeah. that come and burn up very quickly and people release their own stuff and release their friend's stuff, you know. But this is different. This is this is kind of flowered very quickly into yeah. <laughs> something quite big. Some, generally, it looks, you've got the appearance of being that.
1: Yeah, I know. think, uh, I mean, not wanting to dwell on that as I say we'll touch on it yeah. later, I think... Uh, what I've always had I was always brought up to question things I was always kind of brought up to have my opinion challenged and challenge the opinions of others I've got quite an inquisitive nature and I think when you're like that you acquire quite a lot of knowledge Mm -hmm. and when you have a lot of knowledge uh, I think my friends would certainly say about me that I'm quick to see the path to victory in most things we do. Mm Jumping ahead, I'll jump back again out of this because it's an irrelevant side point. But three of us that founded the label are members of a board game group. Right, okay. And we get together and we play really complex German board games. And yeah. these things require an ability to kind of risk assess a situation, look at a number of options, and work out the path to victory. And I think I'm relatively well known at being able to assess a situation and say, right, we need to get from A to B, and this is the quickest route. A lot of my friends will spend half an hour. Arguing and debating until they come to the same conclusion, but yeah. I've always had that ability to say this is the right path So
0: there's a kind of entrepreneurial spirit as well, which is kind of detected when, when I look at your stuff I mean again, I won't do to stray too far from the side of you telling me a about the your background But uh, it also made me think, because you know I had a way look at your picture and stuff. Yeah. <laughs> somebody of that thought, somebody starting a business quite late on in some sense With that kind of spirit and that kind of energy what the hell
1: were they doing before? <laughs> uh, well, actually, that's probably a more interesting subject, is, is what prompted me to do this, because it wasn't that I was sitting about thinking... I'm sure everybody gets to a point in their life where they get a bit bored, or you know, people have midlife crisis and go out and buy a car, or take up photography, or take up hill walking. Uh, I, I don't recall what changed in my life... But I distinctly recall suddenly getting deeply involved emotionally in a movement. Uh, and I've spoken about this quite openly to many people and in, in many interviews. I was passionately involved in the Yes movement. Ah, right, okay. It was a hugely important thing right. to me. I've always been an independent supporter. I've always been an SNP member. I qualify that by saying I'm an SNP member because I believe in the route to victory. I'm not an SNP member because I love Sturgeon or Salmon and I love their politics, but I love that they stand for independence and therefore they're the route to independence. Uh, and I'm deeply passionate about that. Uh, I had been in Vancouver on holiday with my wife and family on the two weeks of the independence, closing two weeks of the independence referendum, and I arrived back in Glasgow on the day of that referendum. Mm. Filled with optimism because the Canadian press were telling me we were going to win. Came back, arrived in London, spoke to some English people who were fearful we were going to win. Got back to Glasgow to a city who thought we were going to win. I stood outside Hillhead polling station when I recorded my vote and were speaking to people and they're saying, we've got this sewn up. And I don't think that's any word of a lie. My wife would confirm this. I pretty much cried for three days. Uh totally devastated by the fact that a city had united itself in a common spirit of cooperation and arts in particular came to the forefront. I remember wandering about the city on one day of the the radical independence movement and walking from socialist Marxists to Greens to SNP and everybody was there to help each other. There was an absolute spirit of unity and it just felt great to be part of that. Now, I'm sure there's people who were against independence who felt a similar kindred spirit in whatever they were believing. Well, I will give them the benefit of the doubt and say, let's hope there was. Because I don't believe everybody that voted no was evil or... No,
0: I mean, I don't think either. But there wasn't the... Uh, I mean, I was in George Square on the evening of before the For the result, uh, I can confirm everything you said mm. there about the notion that uh, the yes movement was going to win. Yeah. <laughs> there was a euphoria. There uh, And the absolute devastation of it not happening. Uh, I felt that also. <laughs> yeah, so
1: I, so I think I felt that for a long time. I think I spent, you know, I mean, that's 2014, and LNFG was founded in 2016. Yeah. So I carried around this kind of void for about two years, this sense of, yeah. you know, nothingness, that something was there and I guess I felt a desire to channel my creativity, my socialism, call it what you will, into something that was of a similar mind.
0: So to go back to your upbringing, I mean was there stuff happening in the past related to your music or the things that were in your head that you wanted to do or I mean, were you a musician? No.
1: Right. taught the piano as a kid, didn't yeah. like it, uh, right. was told in primary school I couldn't sing, right. so that kind of affected any confidence I had in that regard. I don't consider myself to be artistically creative. Right. Uh, I think if you present something to me, conceptually, I can enhance it. I think I can provide a great deal of creativity to a process. And I have a lot of ideas around things I'm working on, but I don't wake up in the morning with an idea for a song or an idea for a painting. Head rather than a musician's yeah, I think head. so, or a remixer's yeah, head or something. Yeah. When you give me something, I can tell you how to make it better. Right. But I don't have that spark of. Well, I clearly do because we up there? a record company. And
0: that was there before all of this. Uh, that ability, recording. well,
1: yeah, because my my company, you know, the company that I run, is one of the smallest companies in the world in its type, but is the biggest at what it does. Right. You know, we compete with companies 50 to 100 times the size of us and, and do better than they do. Right. And we've done that through a sense of cutting to the core of what I think the universal truths are about life. Right. Uh, I'm not a man of faith, uh, but I believe wholeheartedly that, you know, if you put your best foot forward, you'll not do too badly i believe that if you're honest and present truthful consistent arguments you will you know you will get your just rewards Mm -hmm. i believe if it's my company that exists decided you know we were going to present our business model in an ethical and truthful way from day one and having done that ethical, truthful thing from day one, we will stand consistently behind that. We're not going to start jumping ship and changing our arguments when the economics demand that we do or commercial pressures demand that we do. You just put the same face on and tell the truth and be honest and be sincere and be professional. And, you know, it took 10, 15 years of that approach for our company to start getting the rewards it got. But as it started to grow, and really start to grow, we realised that was because people had started to understand what we were saying. The message starts to resonate. Mm-hmm. If you market yourself or you could go for cheap gimmicks to get your point across, you're only as good as the next cheap gimmick that's coming along. Mm-hmm. But if you stand by a truthful observation, yeah,
0: yeah, you well, can't. At the moment, that says exactly that. I can't remember, I can't remember the name of anybody's name, but you know, there's some guy who wrote a book it. It was from one of those TED talks, you know. It says
1: exactly out of that. <laughs> <laughs> well you can't go wrong when you tell the truth. Yeah. Because it's the truth. Yeah. You know, you don't have to worry about how you've presented I something. I you don't have to worry about uh you can come and join us, honey, if you want. I don't know, maybe battle. Yeah. Okay. Mate I wanted to chuck in some interesting <laughs> insights. Uh but I think yeah, if you if you just have a principle and stand by it, you can't go wrong. And I've always had that view. So when it came to starting LNFG, it was driven by that same concept of integrity and honesty and fairness, which to me, going back to what I was saying, were the benchmarks of the Yes Movement. They were about integrity, honesty and fairness. And it drove me nuts that the detractors of, of the Yes Movement didn't even understand what we stood for. They thought we stood for English bashing and yeah. Union flag well, bashing. Save,
0: of course you the same, of course. I mean, I'm heavily involved in uh, ranting and raving when it comes to independence, as I'm sure a lot of people are, uh, on Facebook and Twitter, etc, etc, because I'm also a kind of an independence supporter. I was devastated by this. <laughs> so, so every day I'm ranting and raving. So I hear quite a lot of the other side when people are telling us that actually independence is all about nationalism, which, of course, is a little abogged. No. You know, it's very... I mean,
1: it's yeah, uh, well, it's funny. You know, I, I was seeing my father at the weekend, and my father's incredibly enraged about Brexit and enraged about Trump and enraged about Theresa May and enraged about the angle the country's going on, but he voted no. Right. And I remember pleading with him to not vote no, and his overriding response was that his inclusiveness would not allow him to abandon the well, north I'm of England. I'm
0: completely aware of that argument and I see it's got, it's got
1: validity in a certain sense. But yeah. now, uh, who does he want to hang out to dry? The yeah. north of England that voted for Brexit. Yeah. Who has turned round and abandoned well, them exactly, exactly. Are the so. people that he was supporting. Now, you don't want to turn your back in people. Yeah. And interestingly, I was saying this... Uh, to a magazine the other week we were talking about LNFG, but much as we are a socialist enterprise, we've had to become a little bit inward-looking yeah. in order to look after the interests of our artists because you can't continually be outward-looking. So independence needed to be selfish. And my hope was by being selfish, it would set a benchmark that would radicalise England and they would well, start to it, become... Well, that's
0: the other argument, isn't it? It's to say, well, okay... We're not trying to abandon folk who are working class folk in the north of England who are suffering the same issues as we're suffering. You know, and Westminster doesn't give a shit about them. Yeah. Don't give a shit about us either. Uh, but you know, there needs to be some kind of beacon somewhere right. <laughs> that's doing things in a different way. Yeah. And an in independent Scotland, you know, yeah. certainly in my hopeful future is the place that's going to be doing that. Yeah. Because you know, it's not going to happen down south ever. It's,
1: no, it's not. Ever. Uh, yeah. and i think you know that strangely whilst you spend your time ranting on facebook now about independence i i haven't abandoned the cause but i have channeled those energies into something that's much more colloquial yeah. and much more manageable and in my own way i'm getting the socialist reward from doing what i do which i was hoping to get universally so from what independence
0: these, I suppose, political views, if you want to call them that, have these been the same views you've had for a long time, or are these things that have developed?
1: Uh, I i don't remember feeling differently. Uh, my mum was a devout socialist, proper died in the Labour voter as a kid. You know, I used to travel Eastern Europe, going to Poland, appearing in Polish radio and talking about radical socialism. Mm-hmm. You know, she was good friends with John Pollock, who was a big labour man in the 50s and 60s. You know, she staunch, strong labour supporter. My father probably in the early 80s dabbled in conservatism, as many people did when they saw the promise of opportunity. And I think he very quickly realised that Thatcher's dream was was not a dream to be supported. I mean, let's look at it. I I started voting at 18. We'd already had, you know... 10 years of Tory policies by then. You know, I started working when the poll tax came in. You know, I remember thinking as an 18-year-old, pretty naive, and there's tons of 18-year-olds now who think they get politics, you know, give it 30 years and you'll really start to understand politics. Mm. But I remember at 18 thinking, this just isn't fair. Why are these policies being tried out in Scotland? Why is primary industry being destroyed? I remember as a kid studying economics in secondary school, and, and remember being taught that the basis of an economy is a primary industry, a secondary industry, and a tertiary industry. And here we were in 1989, where only Thatcher cared about was building financial sector. Shipbuilding was going, mining was going, everything, manufacturing was dying in its yeah. arse. So the whole country was becoming a service country. 80%
0: of the English economy is based on services, yeah. as far as I'm aware.
1: But it doesn't, yeah. it doesn't work. Yeah. It's not the basis for building a country. It's not the basis for function. So I remember thinking all of that, I've generally always been a bit of a loud mouth and a bit of a, you know, opinionated sod. So from a pretty young age, you know, I remember when Thatcher won her, was it Thatcher's third term or was it Major's first term? But I remember George Square being packed with people saying, we can't be having this again. That's three elections in a row we voted to not have the Tories, mm-hmm. and we've got the Tories, and like all these movements, it dissipated into you know infighting and mm-hmm. you know the Tommy Sheridans of this world having their agenda and someone else having agendas, and I guess it only really started to become a, f- a real focus for me as an achievable objective probably round about the time that Salmon wrestled control of the SNP away from the likes of Sillars. You know, much as I think Jim Sillers is a great guy and a really interesting politician, he's not a person to appease the mainstream. So
0: you were an independent supporter long before the referendum?
1: Oh, I was an, I've been an SNP voter all my life. Right, okay. I broke from SNP voting once in my life, like many people did. I had a mad rush of blood to the head when I actually thought Clegg had a chance of creating a Parliament with Labour. Mm. And I gave the Lib Dems my vote. I'm one of those people... It's a
0: tactical vote,
1: eh? Well, I did it once. I thought it's not going to make a damn bit of difference to Scotland, so let's give Clegg our vote. It might do something. Mm. Uh, and the SNP, you know, did, did exactly as they were done in Scotland, and Clegg did absolutely nothing. Uh, you know, I don't... I don't occupy a space, I've got many people, people who listen to this, I've got many friends folk in the label who are staunch Labour supporters and staunch Corbynites, I have been betrayed by Labour too many times to ever trust them.
0: Well I think the thing about, to go off a slight tangent, <laughs> the thing about the, the whole independence debate is that it educated so many people, mm. in, including me, uh, I mean I was actually a member of the Labour Party when I was in, I was in the. I come from Clydebank yep. so I was in the Clydebank Labour Party and I was a Labour Party voter uh, and prior to the independence debate I probably would have been a no-voter you know but it was only through being educated by the whole process of the referendum and learning so many things yep. about how Westminster worked and how, how Scotland was cheated out of so much and it was all kind of hidden from us yep. that once you, once you kind of learn these things you like, think my god this is unbelievable yeah. <laughs> how did I not know this so you become sort of well certainly me anyway I went from being somebody who thought well you know it's all about uh, you know sort of what's the word I'm for you know, like being all together and we're all the same blah 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 you know why would I why would I want to separate from from other folk to thinking my god we're getting screwed rotten and so are these people and what we really need is some different government and some mm-hmm. different way of thinking and that led me to going from a kind of yeah I'm going to vote no because of this to I'm going to vote yes because this. I didn't re- I didn't realise all this stuff was going on yeah. you know it's unbelievable the sort of things that, that uh, yeah, and, Scotland's and, been cheated out of and,
1: and perversely when we're here to talk about a record company that's my mantra with LNFG it's ridiculous some of the things that artists are being cheated out yeah, of yeah.
0: well it's let's talk about that I mean, keep banging that because it's going to come through that (laughs) it's just my audio because i record bands and things so i know all their big clicks going on. so yeah so the whole music industry as you are absolutely aware of is not really kind of designed to make musicians rich uh, or to you know be about creativity most record labels are money obviously you know they're making money and most people that start record labels and i don't mean and I'm sure there's some beacons out there that are not, but they're set up by people who think they can make a quick buck. Uh, and I would imagine, you know, a few and far between, other than record labels like the sort of that my friends would set up and I would set up, which is to release our own records and to release our friends' records, which are not about money; they're just about yeah. the ability to put things out. Uh, so how do you get to that point where you think actually, I mean, the whole thing about a record label is anybody who's coming from. Yours
1: and your background think I will set up a That's pretty simple. I mean, I guess, <laughs> I guess everybody has little eureka moments in their life. Uh, I, you know, as I say, was sitting with a bit of an emotional void, I was feeling like I wanted to do something
0: when you're talking about it can you tell me uh, outline a wee bit about the model as well because all Absolutely. I know about it because yeah. I've read your of stuff but the folk that so listen to this probably don't know so
1: essentially uh, going right back to about probably October September, October 2016 did we start in 2017 no 20, so September, October 2015 so it's a year after referendum uh, not two years afterwards uh, I as always am spending my time going to concerts buying records you know, basically every couple of weeks I'm at a gig in Glasgow, I'm seeing bands and I became quite aware of a young Glasgow band called Teen Canteen, yeah, became, to their stuff, actually. became quite, a, quite a fan. Uh, Spoke to the band a couple of times. Was actually chatting to them one night outside a gig about the, what their plans were for the future and how they were going to finance things. Only had an inkling of an idea about what was wrong in the industry. I've always been a vinyl collector. I've never really got into the digital world. I don't understand or appreciate why you want music in a phone when you should be carrying it about in a bag. To me, it should be physical. It should be something you own. Uh, so, as it's happened... Carla of Team Canteen started working in the wine shop round the corner and that coincided with them launching a pledge music campaign to finish the recording of their album. I knew Carla. Is
0: that the cave?
1: No, Valhalla
0: Scope.
1: So she's working Volhalla's Gulp. And one morning I was walking home uh, and looked at my phone and got an email saying that Team Canteen had started a pledge campaign And I looked down the list of pledges, and one of the pledges was to pay for them to pay a a concert in your house. And I thought, I've always fancied having a concert in the house. I'll do that. Pledged, as it happened, popped into Vojala's Goat to get a bottle of wine, and Carla came bounding out from behind the shop and kind of jumped on me and gave me a big hug because it had been a fairly sizable contribution to their campaign. Over the next couple of weeks, couple of months, I was talking to Carla about what their plans were. And I had this sense of, it's really disappointing that this is only going to get a digital release. I've chucked money at this, and I'm not going to own a record. I really want to own...
0: Physical records.
1: Yeah, I, I really want to own a record. And I got talking to her about what would be involved in that, and then started thinking, God, you know, it wouldn't take that much money just to pay for the record. You know, it'd be a lot of money for me to invest, but if I could get it back somehow, I could do that. And then I thought, well, maybe if I got a couple of mates with me, we could all do it. And that turned into this idea of three of us sinking 400 quid into a company, spending 1,200 pounds to make a record, recouping the first 1,200 pounds against the cost, giving the next 1,200 pounds to the artist, and the last 1,200 pounds would be there to invest in a record. Mm -hmm. So we got this kind of idea that if we could make and sell 300 copies of something, it could become a self-financing concept.
0: And how did you get those figures? I mean, Well, I looked again, them up. Right, okay. You
1: go online yeah. and you go to a record yeah. manufacturing company and you yeah. work out prices. That's so, one
0: of my questions, I think. I've looked at that, that's very clear from your... It was a previous interview I read, I think it was in 2016, and the company had just started. Yeah. And it, all, yeah, it seemed to have it all
1: sorted and worked out already. Well, I'm a businessman. <laughs> and Andy, that co-founded the business with me, runs a business, and Stephen, who co-founded it, we were the three of us that got it going. Three more guys came on yeah. shortly afterwards, but we were the three that first started talking about it. Stephen runs a barbers, you know. Andy runs an internet company. I run an insurance company. So we're all a business person to an extent. And we immediately looked up how much does it cost. Now, there's naivety in that because there's much more to running a record company than just manufacturing records. But Mm. all I was thinking of was about a funding model to make records. Mm. As it happened, you know, late November... uh, Joe McAllendon, been a member of BMX Bandits and Superstar and a solo artist who I know slightly, he was looking after a band who were looking to make a video and they wanted a well-lit house to shoot the video in. Well, voila, we've got a well-lit house. Okay. So Joe brought the, the band round, and he spent the afternoon chatting to me and I started saying to him, I'm thinking of doing this. Funding idea. Uh-huh. Yeah. So Joe threw some problems at it, some ideas at it, things that would make it work better, things that might detract from it.
0: That's from his experience. From
1: his experience of what would an artist want. Yeah. I then spoke to Carla and she was saying, well, yeah, it would be great if you made records for us, but what we want is promotion and support and we want all those other things that you wouldn't get from just being given a mm-hmm. pile of stock. Mm-hmm. Stock's terrific, but stock doesn't advance the band. So with that in mind, I started formulating this concept and got it down, I think, to an idea that Okay, three folk, it's going to cost us 400 quid each. Ten folk, it's going to cost us 120 quid each. Hang on, 40 folk, it costs 30 quid each. Mm-hmm. Wait a minute, 30 is not an awful lot of money to ask for. Mm-hmm. So I started putting together on paper this idea.
0: So the crowdfunding thing is this, this is very kind of.
1: Current at the time, I take it? Yeah, I guess what I'd done, I'd board games, I'd yeah. pledged campaigns, yeah. so the idea of going to a crowd and saying, give us money. I'll come on to why I don't think it technically falls into the same model as crowdfunding. Okay. Although we use that term, I don't think we're a crowdfunded business. Mm-hmm. But Stephen and I battered these ideas around for a couple of months. Uh, Andy, who we wanted to be involved in the business, was actually quite unwell and had been in hospital and we didn't want to say anything publicly until we'd spoken to Andy to say, look, do you want to be part of this? Because we'd really like you involved. And then one night at a concert in the West End, Stephen, and Andy and I went to a gig. This is late December. And we said to him, here's the plan. Uh, Andy, like me, is a classic you know, devil's advocate, argue the toss. He threw lots of objections at the idea. We battered down the objections. And he seemed relatively comfortable with it. So we spent much of the January just tweaking the idea And in the mid-January, Teen Canteen were playing a concert in this house, and I had a captive audience of 50 people at the concert, most of them very good friends of mine. Mm -hmm. Uh, In the lead up to that concert, I found myself thinking, and this harks back to the referendum again, I found myself thinking, I am suffering from confirmation bias. I am asking people who like we me all suffer from yes <laughs> but I am asking people who like me yeah. to tell me if this is a good idea. Yeah, yeah. I need to ask people who don't know me yeah, yeah. if this is a good idea. And it's a funny thing when you suddenly ask yourself who don't I know how do you go about finding someone you don't know to ask them a question? You know, it's a, I want to ask someone who will answer me, but who I don't know. And writing to a random stranger, they're not going to get back to me. And I realised that through this funding campaign for Teen Canteen, that Carla's big brother Murray was another avid music fan. He wrote blogs, he was always posting about his favourite records, and I thought, do you know what, I'll ping him an email and ask him what he thinks of this. And I pinged Murray an email to say, I've got this idea, do us a favour, read it over and tell me what you think. And what I expected of him to come back and say, it's bollocks or it's brilliant. And actually, I got an email back which said, can I give you a phone? And I said, sure, you can phone me. I gave him a number and he phoned me, like at 10 o'clock on a Tuesday night and said, right, let's do this. And I was a little bit taken aback because I hadn't been <laughs> suggesting doing it yeah, with yeah, him. Yeah, yeah. But he was like, yeah, great idea, let's do it. So we met for a coffee, we agreed that since Stephen and Andy were my two friends and Murray wanted to be involved, it made sense that he brought a couple of people on, so we had a bit of parity. Mm-hmm. He invited a couple of his friends, Joe and Ross, to get involved. We met in Doghouse in Merchant City one night in February. We agreed to do it. We committed some startup funding, and on the 1st of March, we launched last night from Glasgow. Mm-hmm. Where uh, did the name come from? Uh, well, that came from me because I'm a massive ABBA fan. So it's a lyric from Super Trooper, if you don't know that. Uh, It's the first line. I was sick and tired of everything when I called you last night from Glasgow. So I wanted something that resonated with the city. I wanted something that spoke about nightlife, I guess. Mm -hmm. But I really liked the fact that here we were, an independent record label, mentioning ABBA. I thought that was quite contrary. Mm -hmm. I thought it was quite, you know, different to do that. Most folk tend to mention The Clash or The Sex Pistols or whatever. I wanted to be be mentioning a pop.
0: Folk of a particular age, obviously, you know. Well, this is true. (laughs) Not young people.
1: (laughs) Of course not. Uh, So, yeah, we founded the label. I informed everybody at the Teen Canteen House concert that it was going to happen and basically said to them, I will be coming to you for money. Mm -hmm. And by the time we founded the label, we had decided that the model should be that we ask everyone for 50 quid. We should be up front and very bluntly say we might make an absolute arse of this and you might never see the value of your 50 quid. Yeah, yeah. You know, guys, take a punt on us. We've no idea. But hey, you know us, we'll do our best. And we laid out very clearly yeah. what the model was going to be. I mean, I did
0: see it when it came out. Yeah. I, might have, I don't know if I responded, probably did, uh, because that's sort of person Although I'm such a cynical person, because mm. I've actually been on the periphery of the music industry for so long, long time, that uh, when people start things up, and they ask me for something, or they pitch me something. I usually just look the other way. Yeah. Cause it's happened so often. Of course,
1: you know, and I do too. Uh, but we, but we adopting that philosophy that I had from my own business of be honest, be sincere, yeah. be direct. Tell them the facts, sort it out. And we came up with a model which said, if we can get sixty people to give us fifty quid, we can pay to manufacture two vinyl albums, two vinyl singles. We can promote market, release these. We can stage a concert for each of them. The people that give us the 50 quid will get a copy of each of them and they'll get invites to the concerts. So they will get two records that in the shops would cost 15 to 20 quid each. Two singles that in the the shops would cost five quid each. So they're getting 40 to 50 pounds worth of records plus they're getting four concerts that would cost seven quid each. So they're getting 78 quids worth of stuff Plus, they're getting to be part of something that's Mm -hmm. quite cool. Let's see how we go. We spent from March 2016 until June 2016 recruiting. We signed our first artist, and I'm sure we'll come on to the details of that a bit later, but we signed our first artist, Mark Johnson, and agreed to release his single on the first Friday in June and would release that at a launch event we would put on at the old hairdressers. Mm -hmm. By the time of the launch event, we'd signed our next two artists, a young girl called M Woods and another Glasgow Maverick uh, electronica guy, Stephen Solo. We booked the three of them to play this opening night. We had 93 members at the concert. Mm -hmm. So we'd already exceeded our membership quota by 30. We had 93 members at the concert, and they were seeing bands that they had never seen before in their life.
0: So this music, these these artists, these are just, are these folk, you just liked them? You thought, that's my kind of music? Or did it come from externals? How did, it, how did that happen?
1: Everyone's been different. Uh, when we started out, we didn't have a clue. You know, we literally didn't have a clue. Luckily, Murray had managed a couple of bands. You know, Murray likes to be involved in the kind of periphery of the music scene. He's interested in, you know, lingering in the edge of the shadows of it. I'm... Um, not really that bored about the limelight or, or being involved. I mean, I, I go see bands, but I don't write about them or blog about them or interview them or chat. Murray did. Uh, and he knew Mark. and knew that Mark had recorded an album uh, in Iceland, in Edinburgh, and an album that Murray thought was great. Uh, it was a pretty brave thing to release. I mean, it was a very sparse piece of Scottish alt folk. The B-side was an Icelandic. Right. Okay. I mean, it was an odd debut release. Yeah. Uh, Em, who was cool. it, the next thing that we did, M, uh Stephen and I had seen playing a gig in December, uh, sorry in January for Celtic Connections and then she played down the road at the Hugging Pint one night and I wandered over to her and said, I'm thinking of starting a record label and if we do, I'd like to sign you. Uh, Stephen solo was known to Murray again from having previously managed a band he was in, so Stephen knew, Murray knew Stephen, uh, and it probably took until the middle of the first year for us to start actually attracting artists from outside our periphery because mm-hmm. the first album we put out was Teen Canteen's album. Mm-hmm. I think they were reticent to work with us because we were unknown You know, we're a record label that's just started. They've been working on this record for three years and we come trundling along saying we'll release it. Mm -hmm. By the time we released it, we'd already attracted, you know, 125, nearly 150 members. We were twice the size we thought we were going to be. Mm -hmm. We had much more clout. We were garnering good press from the Scotsman and the National. Lots of, you know, papers were were starting to say good things about us. I'm
0: interested in that as well because... Again, is that because you're speaking to them or is that
1: because they're getting in touch with you or how is that working from... Well, it it changes. So at the outset, uh, I don't quite know how Alan Morrison of The National got to know about us. I'm sure he got a press release from Murray about uh, Mark's single. Hmm. Uh, And something about the label resonated and Alan Morrison wrote, you know, five or six columns in The National. And those five or six columns were game changers for us Mm. because here was a national newspaper Mm. saying these guys look okay they look like they might be on to something and then the scotsman said a few nice things and then some blogs said some nice things the reality of it is it probably took until the middle of our second year for the press to really start knocking our door because i I think think there's some
0: reason you felt right i mean i don't know how these things work obviously because you know, people like my wife. <laughs> She's a very likable person. Yeah. I'm probably slightly less likable. But but what are the factors in these things? Clearly the press and uh the music folk and the national cottoned on to something they liked about about the label and about the record company. Well
1: it probably resonated with them politically. Here we were talking about socialism. Here we were talking about ethics. Here we were talking about fairness. Here we were shining a small light on how unfair it is. Mm -hmm. You know, we were creating a situation that, you know, we were saying to a band that we could press so many records for them that if we sold the ones that were left over that we weren't giving to our members, that they could make more money from selling 150 so vinyl the kind of LPs. The
0: ethical approach or the apparently ethical approach and the sort of fairness to the artist was one of the things that attracted people. I the...
1: think it's the only thing mm-hmm. that should attract people to LNFG. That's going to sound really counterintuitive, but my view in this was we need to be getting people involved as members and founders who actually don't care about the music. We want people who care about the functionality, the fairness, Mm. the nature of it. Because if we get someone who cares about the first single we've released and doesn't like the second single we've released, we will win and lose people based upon output. We want the output to be of a high quality. We want people to think we're producing really good music. But actually, our core members should be buying into the ethos. It's
0: almost like a folk idea. I mean, I've kind of done some stuff in the folk world over the years. And there is this kind of notion that we're all the same and that anybody can get up and be the person at the front and sing. Uh, And actually there's there's an element of that, that the talent, to be very good or not very good, whatever, is slightly less kind of important in that context sometimes than the ability to give somebody the opportunity. To stand up and sing their
1: song. (laughs) Oh, yeah. (laughs) But uh, the talent is massively important, but the talent's massively important to the customers.
0: Yeah, I just mean in the context of, you know, there's a wee bit of that in it with the sounds of it, you know. What's interesting... Maybe not, I don't know.
1: Well, no, but I think what's interesting to me is, let's let's take a band like Sister Mm -hmm. John, you know. So Sister John come along, they're starting out, they've been together as a band about as long as our record label's been together. If they had 100 fans... And the minute we signed Sister John, those 100 fans joined our label. What have we done? We've just robbed Sister John of 100 fans. We've just robbed them of 100 customers. Mm -hmm. We actually want the people that like Sister John to buy their records. Mm -hmm. People that like Team Canteen to buy their records. The people that like Annie Booth to buy their records. The people that like LNFG to join LNFG. There will undoubtedly be a crossover in that, Mm -hmm. but our core funders should not be sitting there Wondering what yeah. they're getting.
0: Well, so it's the classic idea of the the label itself is uh, people know that because you release it because you're yep. the label that release it, releases it, they they're likely to buy into it, and also there's this notion sometimes I think with labels that. You maybe don't like it
1: the first time you hear it, It's say, released by this label. It must be, must be worth some, something, yeah. Give it more of a chance. <laughs> well, that's how Factory worked. And basically, every everything Factory put out, you'd go back and listen to it because yeah. it can't be bad because Factory, of course, is. Yeah, literally, well, right, because there's a lot. I mean, that
0: actually. So, that was part one of Ian Smith from the West End record label last night from Glasgow. I hope you enjoyed that. I certainly enjoyed meeting Ian. Uh, Please, uh, if you enjoy the Glasgow West End or Pat and Jim's West End chat, please subscribe. Please uh, go into your podcast application and click to like, whatever the particular thing is you need to do there. Give it five stars. Tell your friends about it. Uh, we really appreciate that. Uh, and come back and listen to part two next, or whenever it is. I think it might be about two, two weeks from now. Uh, Pat's currently working on some other podcasts uh, She's out to doing some interviews So even if you're not interested in listening to stories about Glasgow West End record labels I'm sure there's going to be some stuff coming up that you are interested in And of course we want to hear from you So for things that you want us to talk about or people you want us to interview Please get in touch and tell us about it you can either email myself at Jim at Glasgow West End at dot co. UK, or you can email Pat at Pat at Glasgow West End dot co, dot co. UK. Pat's also on Twitter I think it's Pat Pat's Glasgow's or is it what is it' it's Glasgow's West End I think and Pat is also on the Facebook you could probably find all of these things just by typing Pat Glasgow West End into Google. Okay, thanks for listening and uh, hopefully catch you the next time. Bye for now.